Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Kylie Camps and welcome to the podcast. This space is dedicated entirely to making a difference in the lives of women. I believe we all have a right and a responsibility to truly live our best lives. It all begins with curiosity, changing our thinking, and cultivating more self-love. Through thoughtful conversations and shared experiences, I really hope that you can take something away from this podcast. I'm a business owner, a speaker, a sleep consultant, and mum of twin boys. I've also recently completed some training in the cognitive behavioral therapy space, and I'm super, super passionate about the ability that we all have to really improve our days. And ultimately, when we take ownership of improving our days, we're really improving our whole life. So let's get stuck into today's episode. Welcome to episode 72. Today's podcast is surrounding a topic that is really close to my heart and my life. And it's one that I've wanted to explore here on the podcast, but I've not really known the right way to do it. I've not known the safest container to explore this topic in, but I really feel that this episode with this guest is a way to kind of dip our toes into that world and open the conversation that I think a lot of us need and want to have. And it's surrounding our relationship as women with food. Now, if you have suffered with an eating disorder and you're not in a place where you want to listen to this episode, definitely log out, turn it off, switch off, that's okay. But I want to be very, very clear in saying that this episode is a healing episode. It's not about triggering anyone. We're very, very careful with the words that we use and I guess the avenues that we take this conversation in. And I think that so many good things came out of this conversation and I could have spoken with this guest for so much longer. And this guest, her name is Mia Findlay and Mia is an accredited recovery coach. She helps people claim back their life. She helps people to understand that they can recover and move through and past eating disorders. And she's a wealth of knowledge. She's a breath of fresh air. And I just, like I said a million times, I so enjoyed speaking with her. I really, really hope that if you are listening to this episode and you feel compelled to reach out or it just sparks something in you that goes, oh, you know what? My relationship with the way that I eat or don't eat really needs some attention. Then I really, really hope this episode is a sign for you. I hope that you can sit with it and take some actions when you're ready or maybe even take actions before you're ready to get on the path of recovery, especially given that 
you know, now everything we are facing, I was going to say as a nation, but it's so much bigger than just nationwide, but everything that we are facing right now with the global pandemic is overwhelming and it's hard and so many of us are choosing to either self-isolate or we're practicing social distancing. I don't know at this stage whether we're going to go into full lockdown and I don't want to speak about the topic because I'm not educated enough to provide really great insights or a high level of value on the topic and I would always just encourage people to do their own research Um, but given everything that we are facing and it's a really uncertain time that can be very very triggering for some people but it can also be a very cathartic opportunity to take a pause and to look at your behaviors and the way that you do cope in difficult times and you know if if we can take anything from this challenging time, perhaps it is a chance to go inwards and look at how you do cope, how you manage and are there behaviours that you want to move away from. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. It would mean the world to me if you take a screenshot and pop it on your Instagram stories, more so than ever this week. This is a, an, I think it's a topic that needs to be explored more and Mia is someone who deserves all the eyes and all the ears on her. She's got such a great message. I hope you enjoy it. Take a screenshot, pop it on your stories, tag me and stay safe. Mia, thank you so much for making time and space in your day. I know it's your admin day to <laughs> chat here and share your miss, your mission and your story with our community. It's such a big topic and it's one that I feel really, really personally connected to. And I just resonate so much with your message and I want to get it out there to as many women as possible because it is the type of content that you know, it can definitely change a life, but I feel like you're saving lives that you're probably not even aware of. Oh, thank you. Thank you. you. That's incredibly kind of you to say, and I'm just so happy to be here because as I've said to you kind of before we recorded, I really resonate with your message and just this lovely non-judgmental online space that you've created for women. So I'm very, very happy to be talking to you today. Thank you. And I mentioned in the intro that you are an eating disorder recovery coach, Mm -hmm. and I can't wait to learn more about that during our chat. But before we unpack your current role and what life is like for you now, Mm -hmm. can we go back to where this all started for you, Mia? Sure. It's, It's so long ago now. It's about seven years ago that I started uploading to YouTube, which is kind of where the story begins. I was uh, on day one of my recovery from my eating disorder and just about to run out the door to go and see my psychologist for the very first time at the age of 25. And as usual, was running late and (laughs) searching around for my keys and thought I'd look under my iPad. And my, um, my eye went to the iPad and I thought, oh, maybe I should get something down either in writing or record something just to have a record of how I'm feeling and have this to look back on. I'm a bit of a sort of sentimental, nostalgic person. And it just occurred to me that in a month or six months or what seemed inconceivable at the time, even a year could pass and I could look back on this and see how different life was and how much progress I'd made. 
And even just doing that first video gave me so much hope and uh, I kept coming back to record and started to create this sort of personal diary for myself. I didn't know anyone else going through recovery. The recovery community online was absolutely tiny. Instagram was really in its infancy at that point. The term influencer was not really a, a term at that point. So Instagram was really a personal platform for people. Um, and yeah, just kept making these videos and didn't have any intention of attracting an audience. And people started finding it and leaving comments and sending me emails saying, I really resonate with what you're saying, or I've been there, or I'm stuck in the same place. And it was just like a light came into my life that I wasn't alone, that there were other people who were not just in the same boat, but further along than me. Um, so started to upload more regularly. And as I got better, I started to become a bit more curious about eating disorders, started researching the different diagnoses, then started finding out about the poor level of access for people to treatment and really, really poor funding at the time and started to talk about advocacy, um, so less about my story. And my community was building very slowly, but we were doing fundraising here and there. And within a few years, the Butterfly Foundation, which is Australia's leading eating disorder foundation, started noticing what we were doing and got in touch. Um, and we worked together for a while before they made me their ambassador a couple of years ago. And around that same time, I started working as an eating disorder recovery coach, helping other people to achieve recovery. So it kind of all was full circle and a really happy accident, but an accident nonetheless. It was none of it was supposed to happen. So that's kind of how I got to, to where I am today. It's definitely a very aware thing to do, that quick little pause of going, oh, you know what, I want to capture this moment in time. Mm. And I really, really believe that life gives us little impulses and that is just such a brilliant and clear example of that. You know, an impulse dropped into you and you followed it mm -hmm. without knowing where it could lead, but it was obviously meant to happen for you. And on a recent episode of the podcast, I spoke with an amazing woman by the name of Amy Jo Martin. And she was telling me about her belief that if we are struggling in life, or going through something really challenging, that it might just mean that we are eventually destined to teach that exact thing. Mm -hmm. Because it's one thing to know all of the data and be textbook educated, but it's a whole other thing to have lived with it. And speaking of the it in this instance, the umbrella term is eating disorder, and it covers a whole, you know, a variety of different mental illnesses. Can you talk us through what exactly is an eating disorder? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what you noted about, uh, you know, turning something that's incredibly painful into something purposeful is, is a really important message, especially within the mental health space. Because for me, when I was first, you know, putting my story online and, and first going through recovery, even though it all looks really great and tidy and and like it had a purpose at the end of it. At the beginning, I had no, I had no idea where it was heading, um, and it was just that instinct, that healthy instinct, which I'd lost connection with for so long. And it, it, I was at rock bottom. I was, I considered myself an absolute failure. I was a uni dropout. I'd had to leave my job. I was so unwell. I was disconnected from family and friends. 
I was in a bad relationship. I was, my mental health was in tatters. I was actually quite suicidal at the time. And I was, I had absolutely nothing left to lose, which on one hand is terrifying. And on the other hand, it's incredibly liberating because it means you can build on that. There's, you've got nowhere further down to go, so you can only go up. Um, Absolutely. I have been there too. Mm -hmm. And it's really scary to share that because vulnerability is, you know, I was raised to believe that vulnerability equated to, to weakness. And I had to learn through this very humbling process that vulnerability is actually strength because vulnerability allows you to connect to other people. And the more people that you have supporting you and the more open you are, uh, the stronger you are because we're much stronger together than we are on our own. So, yeah, I really love that sense of, you know, turning something painful into something purposeful um i think it's a it's a really powerful message with mental health but uh yeah on the topic of eating disorders themselves it is it is quite important to kind of specify what we're sort of talking about because there are so many different kinds of eating disorders and i think we get very stuck uh in on the stereotype right which is usually that anorexia diagnosis that kind of emaciated image that a lot of us hold yeah exactly right that I mean even when I was going through an eating disorder that was my that was what I thought an eating disorder was I had no idea that it looked any different than what the media just continues to show us Uh, but it's actually the most rare diagnosis it's only three to four percent of the sufferer population Um, and even within that diagnosis everyone doesn't look like the stereotype necessarily uh, but it's usually comprised of restricted food intake which leads to low weight there's a fear of weight gain uh, and excessive exercise can play a part distorted body image is a big one um, which is the same with bulimia bulimia again is probably the next most recognized eating disorder but only 13 percent of the sufferer population are dealing with bulimia which most people would understand there's, you know, sort of a binge eating component or eating larger quantities of food usually and then making yourself throw up. That body image distortion is usually in there too. But uh, the most common eating disorder, which surprises most people who I talk to, uh, is binge eating disorder, which is actually affecting 47% of the sufferer population. And mostly they're going to be average weight or a larger weight. So, the stereotype and the stigma is definitely not reflecting the statistics. And I think that's where awareness is changing, but certainly needs to continue to evolve. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's so fascinating, especially those statistics, because like you said, so many people automatically correlate the image of someone super, super slim or sickly looking as a representation of an eating disorder. And then as you mentioned, to know that binge eating disorder is actually the most prevalent of the disorders is so important for people to understand. Can you share any other common misconceptions about eating disorders just while we're on that topic? Yeah, I think that uh, binge eating disorder is a good place to start in terms of the misconceptions because one of the most dangerous misconceptions is that appearance, what it's supposed to look like. And that's not just on a societal level, that's also in our treatment circles. So here in Australia, there's been a bit of funding that's gone towards uh, retraining or additional training for general practitioners. So, you know, your local doctor, because we were just finding that people were being turned away who had 
built up the courage to seek help were being received with comments which were just so inappropriate like you know you're not thin enough to have an eating disorder or you need to healthy weight range yeah or worse than that you need to lose weight which is just it my heart breaks I have people come Mm. to me all the time with that experience because they they have an eating disorder mindset and it's not hard for them to switch into a different eating disorder within that eating disorder mindset so we have people who you know, uh, sort of have this slippery slope like I did. I went from binge eating disorder to bulimia to anorexia binge purge subtype. So I was heavily restricting my food. I was uh, going through periods of binging and then throwing up my food and then going back into restriction because I wasn't uh, treated appropriately because I didn't look like that stereotype and that was from treatment providers. So we really need to change up that expectation of what we think people should look like um, because it is just such a huge roadblock and it takes so much for people to reach out for help for them to then get that reaction that could stop them from ever going back and getting help again. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, it's such a slippery slope when you are already in that world. And I know for myself, you know, when I was really struggling I started with more the anorexia side of things and then I moved through to bulimia and then binge eating disorder. And it's so true that once you're in that vortex of control with Mm -hmm. food and diet, it's very easy to move from one to the other. And so many people in that world do just think, oh, you've put on the physical weight, she's doing well. When really I was mentally at my most compromised when I was struggling with binge eating disorder, but people weren't nearly as concerned about me because I'd in air quotes, put on the weight. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I find myself saying all the time, whether it's on my social media or to clients and particularly to their loved ones, their support network, a recovered body does not necessarily equal a recovered mind. In fact, it's so rare. It's so unlikely I've never even met somebody who's like you know what I recovered my weight or I'm at a healthy weight and that solved the problem these aren't physical illnesses in terms of how they originate they're mental illnesses with physical symptoms so if we're just treating the physical symptom and we're not treating the mental illness then like you said in your own experience it is incredibly traumatic for people to start recovering to see themselves go through a physical change and then we have somebody with a disordered brain in a body that they're even more uncomfortable in which is why as you say that's when you're the most compromised because that level of concern and compassion goes down but things actually couldn't be worse in your head right absolutely and I imagine another misconception then is you know perhaps and maybe it could just be more so the older generation I'm uninformed here but Mm -hmm. my thought is like a lot of the older general um the older kind of generation think that an eating disorder is purely to do with weight and how you look Mm -hmm. and I know in my experience I didn't actually have body dysmorphia I don't think because I was very aware that I was super super thin yeah and it wasn't about the physical for me so I imagine that's another big misconception too absolutely and that's a particularly damaging one because it then when sufferers are internalizing that message that you know they're so concerned with what they look like then it's just about vanity and superficiality and so much of this illness is about shame so to then give people the message that 
you know, it's kind of their fault. It's kind of a reflection of their poor character that they ended up with this illness just continues the cycle. Uh, and it's also going to in, inhibit people's ability to sort of reach out because they think they're going to be judged for it. Um, for being sort of thinking, shallow. yeah, exactly. And I mean, it can appear that way. I, for one, was incredibly fearful of weight gain. I had incredibly low self-esteem. I, on the surface, it looked very much like it was about appearance. But when you boil it down to, it's sort of like I talk about it as a weed, right? When you look at a weed from the surface, you can deal with what's popping out on top. Which, from the surface, it can look like preoccupation with weight or a desire to be thin, but the root system underneath is so much more complex and hidden. Uh, things like people trying to cope with trauma, past or present. It might be people with increased levels of anxiety. We know that there's a big crossover with people suffering from generalized anxiety disorder who have eating disorders. So it's really a way for people to cope with uncomfortable feelings or to numb those feelings when they become too overwhelming because their distress tolerance capacity is so low. So it's a big manipulative uh, coping mechanism, really, that has these surface appearances. And it, we need to see that preoccupation with thinness or that preoccupation with appearance as a warning sign. It's not a reflection of the illness itself. It's just an insight that something much deeper is going on and we've got to dig deeper. I've had people say to me, but Mia, I really do just want to be thin. And it's like, yes, but why? What's Where does the desire to be thin come from? Is it about feeling like you won't be acceptable or lovable or likable unless you are those things? So there's always something, there's always something under the surface which we need to get to. Absolutely. And it's similar to, you know, when I'm operating with my uh, kind parenting company hat on and I'm helping parents with little ones who are moving through difficult behaviours in the toddler years, I often say it's so important that when our toddlers are acting out, we're not just responding or not even sometimes responding to the symptom. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not responding to that behaviour, we're responding to the cause. What's the cause? And sometimes it's as simple as they're dehydrated, they're hungry, yes. they're soiled, they need attention. And it's, you know, a similar thing with eating disorder. It's this could this is the symptom. Let's find out what the cause is rather than just treating the symptom. That's so interesting you say that, Kylie, because that's I any client of mine who would listen to this would be like, yep, Mia loves a metaphor. That's really how I try to, because <laughs> I, I really work well with visualization and, and I want to know sort of the why and I want to be able to see what the purpose of something is before I do it. And I often use the child having a tantrum as a metaphor because there's been a lot of treatment approaches which really take a combative kind of stance with eating disorders like it's treatment versus the person and it isn't it's me and the healthy part of you trying to get in contact with the unwell part of you and figure out what is going on because that unwell part of you is acting out like a child would it's not actually the big scary domineering voice that it sounds like in our heads because if we describe an eating disorder it's reactive it's emotional it's black and white it, uh, it doesn't have a lot of room for logic or rationality. That sounds like a child having a tantrum to me. So I very often say to them, if you see a child throwing a tantrum very often in the shopping center, right? They want a toy, they want a lollipop, whatever it is, and they're screaming their heads off. If that parent were to give the child the toy or the lollipop, quite likely that would keep them quiet for 10 minutes. 
but the actual issue hasn't been addressed, which, as you say, is probably that they're tired or they need a nappy change or they need a cuddle and to be told that they're loved. If you just keep giving them lollipops like we give our eating disorders the behaviours that they want, then we're never, ever, ever going to get to the core problem, which is all manner of things that we've just gone through, trauma or self-esteem or family issues or relationship breakdown, whatever it is that's causing us to reach for those behaviours, like a child reaches for something that's, you know, an immediate fix, we need to actually address what's what's going on, which isn't going to get us the immediate quiet, but it will in the long term get us to the outcome we want to get to. And further than that, we are creating pathways in their little brains yep. if we're talking about kids. And then also if we're talking about our eating disorder selves, we're creating a pathway within that to go, this is how we deal with that. So this is the habit that we're forming. And then so begins that habit mm-hmm. of, okay, when you feel this way, this is how you act. So it's all just so connected, isn't it? Completely. And I think that, look, I feel incredibly privileged to have gone through the recovery process because it's taught me so much about precisely what you're talking about, about how the brain works. When before I went through recovery and I hear my friends do it all the time when they say things like, oh, you know, I want to do this or I want to do that, but the action to do it doesn't happen. And so nothing changes or I want to change Mm -hmm. this habit within myself or I want to change how I think about this or speak to myself. What recovery teaches you is that you have to put that action in every day or nothing's going to change. Your brain is not just going to magically rewire because you wish for it to happen. You have to show up and challenge the thoughts. You have to show up and change the behaviors. You truly have to get in and do the work in order to get to that result. Wishing and wanting is not enough. Uh, And I think that sets you up for a really good uh, lesson in terms of other areas of your life where you want action or you want change. You're the one who has to show up every day and do the work to get there. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I'm very much on the same page there with having moved through my own recovery. I feel as though that has served me so well in all areas of life and, you know, definitely in business in terms of taking action and you know, proving to myself that I can do things, but also just in parenting because, there's, you know, parenting is such a wild ride and it is mm-hmm. so hard at times. And having lived through, you know, as we mentioned earlier, hitting rock bottom and having to claw yourself, you know, back up one foot in front of the other and take those mm-hmm. actions, it does provide so much proof for other areas of life. So for anyone who is listening and feels as though they're in the pits of the pits at the minute, take heart in knowing that both Mia and I are saying we're grateful for having walked the path that we have walked. And, you know, speaking of that path myself, when I was moving through my own ED, the whole health and fitness movement was not huge, which I'm very thankful for. Mm -hmm. It wasn't nearly as big as it is now in terms of the the Fitspo side of things and healthy living being taken to a whole other level Mm -hmm. in social media. I mean, back then, diets and celebrities were on TVs and in magazines but now it is just so much more saturated purely because we have our devices with us a lot of us 24 7 it's literally in the palm of our hands we have exposure to diets before and afters all of these wild products perfect bodies and so many opinions on how to live and how to be and you know clean eating was such a big big thing for a long time Mm -hmm. and sure on one hand there are positives about healthy being more in 
But the downside and maybe even the bigger side is the pressure and the normalization of the preoccupation with food and bodies. Mm. And so I would love to know in your opinion and in your experience, at what point are healthy habits and a healthy interest taken too far? And how can anyone out there who is listening know if perhaps their health quest is now teetering more towards the edge of being obsessive? rather rather than being a healthy interest there's yeah there's so much to unpack there I think what you said is so interesting that you know it used to and I was exactly the same I'm of the generation where I grew up you know especially at school with magazines etc being really the window into that uh impossible beauty and body standard message and what's so interesting is that we went through this outrage period where we all kind of woke up to Photoshop and woke up to the fashion industry and, and the magazine industry perpetuating this look. And now we're all doing it to each other, which is just, it's like the more we know, the worse off we are with things like <laughs> Facetune and social media. We have the knowledge. We know we know what we're doing and, and we continue to sort of be complicit and, and participate in our own oppression right it's it's this thing that we're now when it's trickled down to I see friends of mine who who don't necessarily have platforms and they're face tuning and I'm like I saw you on Tuesday (laughs) this is not what you look like too available exactly and and everyone on your friends list saw you on Tuesday so what are you doing um (laughs) But that's that's the result of that pressure, right, is that we just lose focus of, of what we're doing because we just feel the pressure to, to participate. And I think that that Fitzbo um, movement online has a lot to account for in that area and, and that message that's really been pushed and, as you say, is now readily available 24-7. And even if we're, we have an awareness that it's not necessarily normal just because something's common doesn't mean that it's normal, I think we need to stop conflating those two concepts. But um, I think when we're overly exposed to something, there's there's some research to back this up, that if we're overly exposed to something, even if we have an awareness that it's not say, realistic, whether it's beauty standards, body standards, Photoshop, whatever, Um, if we're subjected to it enough, our brain starts to interpret it as its own kind of reality. So even if we're told something's Photoshopped, if you are exposed to enough images repeatedly, you'll start to form this reality in your head of what you're supposed to look like. And you're not participating in building that reality. Your brain is like a computer. It's just going to take an average of everything your it's environment. Sent. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 solution-based. So it's like, okay, if you give me enough data, I'm going to take an average from that and be like, okay, that's what you're meant to look like. So being aware is not enough. Uh, removing yourself from those kinds of or taking away those influences is, is really important. But, yeah, I was the same. I, I didn't develop my eating disorder necessarily at a time when Fitzpo was big, but it was certainly growing and it, it did have a big bearing and influence. And I, I see that certainly in my community and, and hear that feedback from people that they're just so overwhelmed with this message conflating health and appearance. And I think that's really dangerous that we have this synonymous message of if you want to be healthy, it has this look and it really is one look. Uh, we, we're just not aware that health is much more broad than just abs, right? Um, mm-hmm. You don't, it's not a six pack. In fact, 
when I was my most unwell is the only time I've had a six pack. Uh, I've never had one since and don't intend to have one because that's not, that's not right for my body. That's not healthy for my body. Um, but yeah, we, we really do equate health to a look and it sort of perpetuates the idea that weight loss is something we should all aim for and should always be celebrated. And we just have no idea if we're potentially celebrating someone's eating disorder. We could even be celebrating a terminal cancer diagnosis, a chronic illness, stress or depression. You know, the first thing that women say to each other when they see each other is, oh my gosh, you've lost weight. You look amazing. And we just have no idea what's really going on. We have no idea what life event or health status they're experiencing. Um, And we just immediately equate that to a positive thing, which I just think is quite a missed opportunity to connect in other ways, right? Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And just this past weekend, I took my little boy got twin six-year-olds and we went away for the weekend mm. down to Byron Bay glamping and there were these two little girls it was so nice Mia but there was this moment that I feel has really changed me just since it happened two days ago these two beautiful six-year-old girls came over to have a chat with the boys and I and the first one said my name is we'll just call her Susie for now my name mm. is Susie and the other one said my name's Annie and then the one the other one said anything any thinks that I'm much prettier than her oh, like that no. was the first thing and mm-hmm. the other little one's face just dropped and oh, she gosh. just gave like a sad little nod mm-hmm. and I just thought holy shit from the mouth of babes here are yeah. six-year-olds and the first thing that they bring up is their image and then the next thing to come out of their mouths was how old are your boys and they answered And then they both said they're small. And I was like, oh, my gosh, within five minutes, we've had so many different things around here. (laughs) And I said to the girls, I said, you know what? You're both really great and there's all sorts of different pretty. And you know what? That's not really that important. And I was just like, I don't even know, you know, like just within the space of five minutes, we have these two little girls who are comparing themselves. And then they're also casting judgment on two boys because they're not, big kids like this Mm -hmm. like and I just thought oh my gosh it's so powerful for us as adults that we model better behavior so that when we run into our friends we don't go oh my gosh you look amazing it's hey how are you Mm -hmm. or I saw this great thing that you did or we're complimenting people on things other than their appearance completely I made a promise to myself because when I went to recovery two of the first things instinctively that I asked my friends and family to do was a never comment on my appearance I mean that I obviously rescinded on that once I got better but even when I got better I was like I still don't want you to comment because there's just more interesting things that we can talk about um but I asked them not to comment on my appearance or my weight as my body changed or whatever whether it's complimentary or negative or anything that they thought when they saw me and don't comment on my food but the first one was particularly important and really benefited me in the long run because it gave me this space to say well that's off the table right I'm not looking for that acknowledgement I'm not looking for that assessment I've got to go and find stuff that's a bit deeper here and I I, it once they don't have that to say they've got to get inventive they've got to come up with stuff that we don't talk about which is like you look so happy or I, you know, congratulations on that thing that happened, or just checking in. Are you okay? How have you been going lately? As opposed to that knee jerk, 
appearance assessment and that apparently is the uh, indicator of, of how we're all feeling or, or how we value each other. And we really don't. If somebody asks me the first, and I get clients to do this, I ask them to ask their loved ones for three to five things that first come to their minds when they think of this loved one of theirs who's my client. And 100% of the time, their appearance never makes it onto that list. Their weight never makes it onto that list. But that is the first thing that we're telling each other is what we value because it's the first thing to come out of our mouths. And, you know, that conversation you have with those little girls just breaks my heart, but it also doesn't surprise me because that is the trickle-down effect of diet culture. We're all living in this environment that we don't question uh, you know, about appearance, about beauty standards, about body standards. And we've got these little sponges walking around absorbing this and they have no filter. So we just hear it totally unvarnished coming out of their mouths and we're shocked by it. But that's the message that we're putting out. They're internalizing it. And we didn't, we don't teach ourselves this stuff, right? We don't come up with it on as a society on our own. I remember, um, Back in the 90s, there was an, a survey from Esquire magazine, which isn't, you know, the centre of empirical research, but it is still an important uh, reflection. And it was a it was a survey of a thousand women between the ages of 18 to 25, and two thirds of those women responded that they would rather be mean or stupid than be fat, and worse than that. 54% of them said they would rather be hit by a truck than be fat. Wow. Okay. And that was before the advent of social wow. media. I mean, the internet had barely been thought up, let alone these very image heavy platforms with all these doctored images being accompanied by this is how I look this way by my program where, you know, the stipulation should be, this is photoshopped with great lighting. This is also partially my genetics. And you don't actually know if I'm eating like this or exercising like this, but I'm selling you this image of health, quote unquote, and charging you for it. And you very likely won't look like this because you're genetically probably not built to. And also this is a program which is going to set you up for failure because we're prescribing a calorie intake which a child needs and telling you to eat like that for 12 weeks and invariably your brain and your body are going to start to rebel because they're designed to survive and you can't survive on that calorie intake for that period of time your body doesn't care what you want to look like or what that or what that influencer thinks you should look like it cares about survival and this is the problem with connecting health and appearance is that your body does not care what you look like. It cares about how it needs to run all its systems and help you live your life. And that does not mean that you need to have a six pack to do all those things. Absolutely. And speaking about health, it's so important. I think that we are defining what health means for ourselves. Just recently, I had this conversation with a girl, a girlfriend of mine, and it was similar to, as you said, you know, so many people think health equals exercising this amount of times a week or being a size whatever it might be or having whatever sort of muscles but it's actually so powerful to stop and just take a pause and go okay what is healthy to me mm-hmm. and this is why I feel like now as a mum I I wouldn't be able to go back to having an eating disorder because for me health is about being able to keep up with my kids and being a good role model. So that's what, you know what I mean? Like just redefining what is health 
on your own terms. And I'd love to just circle back because we touched on the whole Fitzbo movement and how available and how much it's shoved down our throats now. Mm -hmm. But for anyone who is listening and say they do have a bit of a fascination, a bit of a preoccupation with being healthy, how can they know if that is an interest or if it's bordering on being too obsessive? Oh, sure. So I think that a really good, indicator and this is the one that I use with clients but you know I think it it applies to people who are also you know not necessarily falling into the eating disorder diagnosis because to go back to sort of that list that I gave earlier of the different diagnoses another important bullet point is disordered eating which a lot of people engage with in their lives if we're looking at you know if we're looking society-wide it's a very high percentage and that can be things like chronic dieting it can be fasting it can be cutting out food groups that isn't necessarily supporting your health obviously people have intolerances and they have to support their health in that way um So disordered eating is very, very common. Disordered relationships with exercise is very, very common. And I think a really great indicator that things might be drifting out of that healthy, balanced area is if you were to ask yourself, say, in this case of exercise, what if I didn't do it this week? What if I didn't engage in any movement this week? What kind of feelings does that bring up? Does that bring up anxiety? Does that bring up thoughts of compensation? Oh, well, if I don't do that, then I can't eat this. Or if I, you know, uh, eat this food, then I have to compensate by exercising. And if I can't do that, then that's going to throw out my whole week. And ask yourself if you couldn't work out for a month. Keep extending it and see how long, you know, you could push it until some of those feelings of anxiety come up. And if it's pretty short term, that would be concerning uh, because it's not so much how you feel while you're doing it. It's more how you feel if you couldn't do it, can you just say, oh, that's all right. It's a week. That's fine. I'd enjoy doing it. I'd prefer to do it because it would be enjoyable. But if it doesn't then lead to thoughts of um, cutting out foods or changing the way that you'd eat uh, or feelings of anxiety, then you're probably in a bit of a safe territory. I think it's also um, important to think about how we talk about food as well. A lot of the language that we use around food and I think diet culture is probably quite responsible and, and marketing and advertising is as well. Things like, you know, calling foods uh, cheat foods or guilt or naughty or sin, all these really strong moralistic words that we use around food just sort of normalizes that, you know, there's good and bad foods and we're categorizing foods morally. I'm, I'm never going to tell somebody that there isn't a spectrum of healthy and unhealthy food or less healthy food, I should say. But if you're using moral language, that's that's concerning. Um, if if we think about even the word cheat, that's that's really strong language to use about a donut, right? When cheating really mm. is it's a reflection of dishonesty and betrayal, and we're using that language to talk about how we fuel ourselves. We don't talk about air in that way. We don't talk about getting sunlight in that way. We don't talk about water in that way. These are all things that we need to survive, but food gets this special category where we we put it into different groups about whether or not that makes us a good or bad person. Um, I think a big one for me was uh, how it kind of impacts your social life. So if you find that your exercise routine or your food habits really limit your social interaction, like for me, if I would go, even if I were going on a date and they switched the restaurant last minute, I would cancel. I missed out on quite a few dates with some quite nice 
boys uh, because <laughs> I could not go to the restaurant Control. that day. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, it was, and I couldn't. I I knew I couldn't pretend to you know behave normally with that level of anxiety going to a restaurant I wasn't prepared for. Um, so definitely isolation is a big one, and I, how it affects your mood is a good indication as well. You know, obvious things like irritability, tiredness, brain fog is a big one, poor distress tolerance, being, you know, very emotional and reactive, which then has this huge flow-on effect with our work, our relationships, how our, how we sort of exist in our own heads. The consequences are quite, quite big even without having an eating disorder and, and should definitely be um, acknowledged and resolved if we can. Thank you. That's really, really helpful. Now, you touched on you know, eating disorders and disordered eating and also the different um, styles that fall under that umbrella term. Do you feel personally and also professionally, I guess, that an accurate or any sort of diagnosis is imperative to recovery? Do you feel that people need that diagnosis to begin feeling a little bit, you know, moving away from that behaviour or that illness? I think it can be helpful in the sense that it it can kind of legitimizes the wrong word but validate it can validate people's feelings but the problem therein is that you shouldn't need to have your feelings validated to go and get help and and the way that we've sort of structured how we talk about eating disorders from a professional and treatment standpoint is letting a lot of people down in that in that way that unless they see themselves in those categories these very very strict categories from a um, kind of a descriptor standpoint uh, they really don't feel like they're the term I hear, hear all the time is not sick enough. So I think that requiring these really stringent um, sets of criteria can be a big roadblock for people to get help. So personally, no, I don't believe that having a diagnosis is necessary at all in order to recover um, because as we've talked about, Doctors can be quite bad at even spotting eating disorders. So there's all these reasons why you may never get a diagnosis in the first place. And even if you don't end up with a set of behaviours that would be considered an eating disorder, like we've talked about with disordered eating, it all deserves attention. It all deserves recovery. Anybody who is miserable or at war with their body or at war with food to whatever degree deserves help, should get help, can get help and can reach a place where it's not, you know, dominating their life or robbing them of uh, happiness or opportunities or their relationships. So I think that this whole focus on, on not just getting a diagnosis but then the specific diagnoses is probably doing more harm than it is good and I know that that's up for review and there's a lot of debate going on in the space around that and I'm a really big advocate for saying you know let's treat it as a mental illness and see that we're more alike than we are different in our different diagnoses and stop dividing people because I just yeah I think it's just hurting a lot of people and stopping them from reaching out in the first place which is really what we need them to do to get them help. So important and if we compare it you know to other mental illness or other I guess you know even things like addiction in terms of alcohol or drugs you don't need to be the worst drug user or the biggest drug user out there, or you don't need to be the most chronic alcoholic to get help managing 
with that side of life. And it's the same with eating. If you're struggling, you don't have to get to a point where, you know, you are at complete rock bottom to actually make these improvements. So I agree with you in terms of you don't need an official diagnosis. Mm -mm. If you're struggling and you're finding it hard, it's a great time to, you know, go out and get some help and take some steps towards recovery now yeah and clinically speaking sorry to interrupt you there Kylie but I think it's important for people to know we've we've talked about those neural pathways the longer that you use a behavior or a, a way of thinking the more entrenched it becomes in the way that your brain operates so the sooner you intervene the better off you are in sort of moving into a, a better headspace because they're not as entrenched that that um that way of thinking is a bit more surface level than it is deep wired in so yeah getting help early is absolutely to your benefit and this whole concept of sick enough does not exist it's it's Mm. more of a red flag than it is a real thing if somebody tells me they don't feel sick enough I'm like that makes you sick enough because that's actually (laughs) one of the biggest red flags that you probably need to address something so yeah really want to reiterate that thing is not sick enough thank you that's what I was trying to get out but you've said it so much more eloquently than I was I was trying to say you know it's better off that you focus on it when it's just one glass of wine rather than it's wine a day so thank you that's I think from the chronic standpoint as well as you make a really good point about if we're talking about substance abuse, we acknowledge that earlier on is better and people feel more entitled to that help earlier on than they do with eating disorders. But I often put it to clients, they'll say things to me like, I'm not sick enough, I'm not, you know, as chronic as other people. And then they'll use the uh, example of, you know, well, if somebody else needed treatment and they were more chronic than me, then they need it more than I do, so I'm taking up their spot. And I'll often say to them, if you were to be diagnosed with stage one or stage two cancer, would you say, oh, hang on, there's people with stage four cancer and I'm going to wait until I'm terminal before I go and get treatment? Of course not. Of course not. You wouldn't wait until you get to the point where it's so chronic uh, that you have so much more work to do just because other people are in a position that's further down the line than you. If anything, that's a really great reason to actually go and intervene earlier. I love that. That's so helpful. And in terms of recovery, when you're working with clients, what are some of the first steps that someone could take towards recovery? Uh, So I think telling someone is incredibly important which might be obvious but I always uh, follow that up with try to pick the right someone it takes people usually quite a while to pluck up the courage to say something so if you pick someone who you think might not have an appropriate reaction then that can be very discouraging from continuing to seek help so trying to pick someone whether or not it's you know a friend of yours sort of test the waters initially or a parent or a family friend maybe a school counselor maybe it's um yeah maybe it's a partner whomever you think is going to just be supportive and compassionate is really important um and follow up to that is definitely then taking the step to seek treatment if that's something you're lucky enough to have access to please take advantage of it because that's an enormous benefit is to have that guidance and to have that specific uh, support and help from a therapeutic or dietetic standpoint um, 
it's not you know people do uh, recover without it but it is it is more difficult if we're being totally honest and if you are doing it by yourself there are more you know affordable accessible resources things like uh, the eight keys to recovery from an eating disorder which is written by eating disorder specialist carolyn coston who is a therapist and uh, recovered herself about 40 years ago and has set up treatment centres all over America, which have been really successful. So there are resources that you can access if if treatment is not necessarily an option. It is a it is a privilege to have the financial capacity to to access treatment. Um, and from a day to day standpoint, surrounding yourself with healthy support and uh, online influences following people who inspire you, not just from a recovery standpoint, but from a life standpoint. Um, but if you are following people who are recovery focused, making sure they are sort of safe examples that their recovery is effective or that they appear to be recovered and and speak about it in a responsible way. They're not talking about sort of calorie counts or weights or specific behaviours. Um, there's great podcasts out there. Christy Harrison, who's just released a great book called Anti-Diet, also has an excellent podcast called Food Psych, where she talks about eating disorders, body image, uh, intuitive eating, uh, all kinds of really helpful stuff. Um, and, yeah, just educating yourself as much as you can, reading books like The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf is one that I recommend to everyone, Intuitive Eating by uh, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Bresch. There are so many great resources that aren't necessarily too expensive uh, to help you kind of stay on track and, and stay in that nice recovery bubble of influence, I suppose. Absolutely. Not to mention your own YouTube channel, your own videos, and you have a podcast as well, don't you? I do. Podcast is on hold for now, uh, but there's a, I have a YouTube channel with about 250 videos from over the years just a uh, few <laughs> just a few um you know I I am dating back all the way to when I started my recovery and then you know there's some more informative stuff from the last couple of years when I've been working kind of in a more professional capacity but yeah it's it's wonderful to see more people with lived experience who sort of also have that professional influence now because yeah, I see it with clients that it's not just the information they want. They also see you as this demonstration of what's possible. So I think if people are surrounded by that uh, online, it can be just so powerful to see what's possible. Absolutely. It's like lifting your head out of the fog and just going, okay, if they can do it, I can be inspired to do it today. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's it's the most unbelievable feeling to get, you know, messages from people saying, I was going to use a behaviour today and I came back to your channel. Or some people send me messages saying, I have dinner with you every night <laughs> and you You help me get through my meals. And, you know, when I feel hopeless, I come back to this particular video. And, um, yeah, just I know how powerful it is to see people being honest. And that sort of comes back to what we first were talking about, that vulnerability is not just beneficial to you, but it's really a gift to other people. So I'd really encourage people where they feel comfortable to share share their struggles. You'll you'll help people in ways you can't even imagine. Absolutely. And in terms of you touched on treatment at the beginning for people who are listening, if you're feeling like you don't have someone that you can turn to in your real life, the best thing that you can do is to head to your GP and say, I need a mental health care plan. Yeah. And 
actually follow through with it, book your appointment, get yourself in. You it, you might find that the therapist or the psychologist that you, you know, initially have your meeting with might not end up being the one that you work with, but yep. it's a great, great platform to go, okay, walking into a safe space, spewing out all of your thoughts, mm-hmm. and then they can help guide you and create a plan as well for some accountability in terms of having that treatment at a very beginner level. Absolutely. And, you know, in, in Australia last year, we had this extra, I've never been so proud to work with butterflies. I was last year, they hit so many milestones. They, we had the introduction of the new Medicare number for eating disorders, which is the first of its kind in the Medicare system. And the funding, you know, is extraordinary. It's, it's obviously not going to cover everyone given we've got over a million people uh, in Australia suffering from eating disorders, but it includes uh, coverage for 40 psychologist sessions. And I'm a terrible ambassador because they switched it so many times. It's between 10 and 20. I think it's 10 dietetic sessions. It was originally. They may, they may have bumped that up. Um, so I'd really encourage people to go to their GP and utilise that and make mention of that funding and that uh, that Medicare number because there was a lot of work that went into that acknowledging that this stuff is not going to get resolved in 10 psychologist sessions, which is the usual mental health plan. Um, Yeah, exactly. And a great point as well about finding the right people. It can be very frustrating to go and have to repeatedly tell your story, but you have an obligation to find the right treatment for you and, and to keep trying. And it can be discouraging, but there is good support out there. It's a it's sort of like a romantic partner, right? You just got to keep uh, keep showing up to that first date until it clicks um, and you will find somebody who is a really good match for you. It's just a matter of, of prioritising it and, and keep going. Absolutely. I love that. And now for anyone who's listening who may have a loved one that they're worried about, how can they best support them? I think there's two important aspects. Uh, The first one being to educate yourself, sort of like we've talked about today. It's not just up to the individual going through the process to equip themselves with knowledge. If you're supporting someone going through this, going to websites like the Butterfly Foundation or the National Eating Disorder Association in America, it might be BodyWise over in Ireland, whatever your local foundation is, they'll be able to give you some great info on sort of eating disorders themselves in terms of the diagnosis, but they'll have some clear info there about how to support somebody. Um, But beyond that, as we talked about with someone going through the process, seeking out examples of what it's like to go through recovery from the individual's perspective, I think can be really helpful because this is quite a difficult mindset for outsiders to understand. It's kind of like learning a language and I consider myself, you know, I consider it one of my, you know, superpowers in the work that I do is that I do kind of speak these two languages. So I spend a lot of time talking to people's support networks, whether it's their parents or their partners or their friends, kind of talking back and forth over the fence, trying to help them understand uh, what's what's going on and, and what their loved one needs versus what they're actually expressing. So, yeah, seeing how it is to live in that headspace and uh, seeing what's possible for recovery, I think, can help people to to be effective in supporting someone, but also understanding your limitation. You cannot make somebody want to recover 
you can make somebody go through the steps, but in terms of them feeling that that desire to do it and that that motivation to do it, you can't force that out of somebody. So approaching them with compassion and patience and saying, I'll be here when and if you're ready um, and not approaching them with hostility or frustration, which I know can be so hard to watch something from the outside that just doesn't make sense to you. Um, is likely that's likely just going to make them retreat into themselves further and, and that's the last thing we want when we're trying to reach someone so yeah be supportive but don't take on the responsibility it is that person's responsibility and it's their accomplishment so you've got to let them own it and speaking of that person if you could say just one thing to anyone who's listening who may be struggling what would that one thing be I'd have to say Without a doubt, although it's cliche, particularly with eating disorders, it's important to reiterate that you are not alone. You are never alone. Eating disorders are so isolating by nature. That's how they keep people stuck and keep people sick. Um, so always want people to know that whether or not it's little old me on social media harping on about this stuff, that I am with them and I see them and hear them, but they would be seen and understood and heard by so many more and when they're ready to please pluck up the courage to seek help in a more official manner. But whilst you're getting comfortable with that, please come and be part of, you know, these great communities and circles online, which will help you to to get to that place and, and remind you that this isn't just you. It's not a character flaw. It's not a personal failing. It is an illness. And just like any other illness, it can be resolved and healed uh, and you deserve that. So keep trying until you get there. Beautiful. And speaking of healing and resolving eating disorders, I personally still feel like I have to be aware and mindful of my self-talk and my behaviours at times, particularly at times of stress. Mm -hmm. That's when I go, oh my gosh, I do still have that little child inside of me that has that tendency to want to run down that path. And I have to be super aware to catch her before she goes Mm -hmm. down that path. Do you have habits and practices for yourself that help you to cope with being immersed in the world of eating disorders? Because on one hand, you know, I think of you and the work that you do, and obviously it's absolutely incredible. And I think on one hand, it would be a great aligner in terms of keeping you well because you can so clearly see things. But then on the other hand, it could also be potentially dangerous for someone who is predispositioned to have those thought patterns to be so surrounded by that world. So how do you cope with being immersed in the world of eating disorders still? Well, I guess it's, um, you know, working with people with eating disorders has never really triggered me. Uh, I was I was wary of that, especially when I went into it in a more professional capacity because, you know, obviously you're working with people one-on-one and hearing about behaviours and people can talk numbers with me, et cetera. And, you know, of course there was that concern. Um, but I've never found it triggering and I put that down to the fact that I've actually been doing this for several years as an advocate. Even when I was unwell, I was online and I would receive novel length emails from people detailing some pretty intense stuff. Um, And there were times when that was happening when it would would quite deeply trigger me. Um, But in the long run, I think it actually helped me because it it gave me the opportunity to challenge uh, things uh, and made me more determined to fight back so that I could show other people that they could as well. So, you know, whether or not it was intentional, if people were just sending me triggering content without meaning to be upsetting, but sometimes people 
would make comments on social media that were intentionally nasty. And I would use it as an opportunity, like I said, to challenge that thinking. It was sort of like my eating disorder was showing up in my comment section. Uh, mm. So it was sort of like, are you kidding? I don't, I don't take this from my own brain. It's, I'm not going to take it from you. Um, so it was actually, it, it, like you say, it kind of built up that uh, resilience. Um, and, you know, I, I'm someone who is, would be considered fully recovered. I don't experience thoughts or behaviours. Uh, I'm aware that I have a vulnerability to eating disorders. Uh, there's a wonderful um, specialist in this field, Dr. Cynthia Bulick. She's the founding director of the Centre of Excellence for Eating Disorders. And she puts it really nicely when she says it kind of becomes part of your health legacy. So an eating disorder is part of my health legacy. It's a vulnerability, but it's not something that's active. So sort of if someone were to injure their back that able to fully recover from, they still probably wouldn't be able to bungee jump or engage in, you know, activities like that. Mm. But they don't, they don't have to think about it constantly, probably quite rarely, uh, just like I know that I can't diet. But I also, I don't want to. I've learned too much. I know how pointless it is. I know how dangerous it is. And because of the work I've done, I found fulfilment and self-acceptance and purpose which goes so far beyond my body, it's not, it's not an option, not just because it's dangerous, but because it's just, it just seems pointless to me because of the work I've done. And yeah, I think, I think I'd be a lot like you've sort of stated it. Um, it would be more life stress as opposed to having contact with people with eating disorders. I was very confident in my full recovery for a long time, but sort of became absolutely certain in it last year when I actually moved to America for three months to take care of my dad uh, in the last months of his life. He was living over in Massachusetts and passed away from cancer. And I said to my sister, I said, if there's anything that could ever make me relapse, it would be this. It was incredibly traumatic, a totally unstable time and has been difficult since. Um, but I didn't, I didn't relapse. And I know now I could never go back. There, there would just be nothing bigger than that that could, that could, you know, potentially exactly potentially uh, send me back. So, it's more that I've done the work to see when I do get stressed, when I do get anxious, when I am upset, when I'm feeling lonely and disconnected. It would just never get to that point because I, I know I have to deal with those things. I can't let them fester and get to the point where they turn into this big ugly ball um i i just have to be able to resolve that stuff before it gets out of control i'm so so sorry to hear of your loss that's heartbreaking um yeah very really very difficult i thought my eating disorder was you know the hardest thing i'd ever gone through that's certainly now been trumped but it was also you know even in something so dark you've got to look for the silver lining like we were talking about earlier the bad will continue and the good will wait to show up. And for me, it's starting to show up because just like with my eating disorder, I never would have said back then that there was any blessing in that. But those blessings are starting to show up um, just in the sense that it's such an indicator of how how strong you are and you don't even know it. But you've got to trust 
you've got to trust you've got that inside of you. Um, Absolutely. And even just hearing your perspective on, you know, say someone purposefully throws a negative barb at you, wants to hurt you online, Mm -hmm. you know, you really could take that and run with it, but instead you're putting it up and going, oh, wow, okay, here's a great opportunity to, you know, not absorb it, but here's a great opportunity to face that. Yeah and strengthen your mental resilience and your emotional well-being and so hats off to you because you're doing an incredible job no one's ever going to say anything worse to you than you've said to yourself so when you hear it externally like my clients say but I'm surrounded by diet talk it's like yeah just respond to it in your head the way that you would if you said it to yourself you've got a challenge no matter where it's coming from um it's all an opportunity it's not necessarily something to resent it's something to embrace and go what can I do with this what what would I do with this moment if I had chosen it right um and try to find try to find the good in where you can that's not to say there's good in everything but if you're patient enough it might just show up yeah absolutely and now when you were in the thick of your struggles I can just guess (laughs) from Mm -hmm. having lived it as well that there wasn't much room for fun so I would love to know now how is your life different and what do you do for fun? Because fun is something that's just been on my mind for months now because as women, <laughs> it's like fun is the first thing taken off the table when we become oh. adults. It's like, no, no, fun's for, like men, they always know what to do for fun. But as women, <laughs> we start to think that a bath is fun or a I face know. mask is face fun. Face mask, thank you. Oh, and the dress sure. face mask. Those things are lovely mm. and great, great to do for self-care. But they're not fun. So, Mia, what do you do for fun? It's always got to be, well, there's two things. I love my time by myself. I'm, you know, probably far too independent for my own good. Um, I love being by myself. I love my alone time. I'm actually going to Lord Howe Island next week uh, by myself. I do that. Have you been before? Yeah, I was actually there in December. Like, what a princess. so beautiful. (laughs) Have you been? I was a flight attendant, so I haven't stayed there, but I've been there. <laughs> the Lord Howe Run. Oh, my gosh. Oh, you must go, especially if you've got two little boys. It's the best. It's so safe and it's such a great place for them to run wild and to know that, you know, they're really somewhere where they can't get into too much trouble. Um, but I love to travel. I love to write. So I take myself off once a year to get a whole lot of creative stuff done and, and to do a whole lot of creative writing. Um, I love in terms of, you know, being by myself, I also love being with people who are most important to me. So because of my eating disorder, I was very alone, very disconnected for a long time. So probably my greatest joy and the time when I'm having the most fun is when I'm with my mates and with my family. They are the greatest gift for me. I I'm so lucky to have people in my life who genuinely make me laugh so hard. I have to, like, please beg them to stop because I'm in so much physical pain. It's killing me and it's just tears rolling down my face. So wherever they are, it's going to be fun, whether we're, you know, down the coast renting a house for the weekend or going hiking or just on a road trip. Um, it's really the people in my life which which define fun for me. My people are very precious to me because, yeah, almost almost lost that, and I'm, I managed to be very grateful when I'm with them because they are, yeah, truly they're the definition of fun. I love that, and as a fellow introvert, I'm sat here 
nodding along like yeah that's my idea of fun too laughing with the people that you love but also hey I love to be alone so I completely resonate with that now oh totally totally now lastly before I let you get on with the rest of your admin day I just wanted to finish with a couple of quick rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little bit better and end on a slightly lighter note I guess um so if it's okay with you I've got a couple of those and if you can just shoot me your first response to them that would be super ready to go ready okay what is your go-to cafe order about if I'm feeling no energy latte feeling relaxed uh brewed chai with soy milk and a lot of honey yum sweet or savory person savory block of cheese uh is going to be murdered within about 15 minutes if i know it's in the house love that now describe your personal style or your daily uniform (gasps) love pants have been quite a pants lady for the last year like nice high-waisted sort of flowery print pants uh just knotted up white t-shirt hair out and curly and I wear one gold ring on my right hand and that's it pretty pretty fuss free and comfortable if it kind of feels like pajamas but looks good that's the perfect combo for me absolutely now what is your favorite song or artist right now oh that's hard I think eternally it's always I mean if I had to pick one song to listen to for the rest of my life it would be Both Sides Now by Joni Mitchell not the 60s version but the one that she made like 40 years later because it's just the most beautiful description of life most people would recognize it from you know that heartbreaking scene in Love Actually when Emma Thompson is crying because she just found out about yes yes I was gonna say I don't know it but I do know it (laughs) must go and listen to it after this uh, conversation. It is the most beautiful song and just so perfectly encapsulates how, you know, uh, different life events can look from different ages and perspectives. It's just gorgeous. So if I was stuck on an island and I could take one song with me, that would be it. If you were on Lord Howe Island and you could only take one, that would be that. Got it. (laughs) Exactly. No cell phone coverage. So you never know. You might get stuck with one song on Lord Howe Island, truly. Absolutely. Now, what would be your worst habit? Oh, collecting coffee cups on my desk. I am that person. Everything (laughs) else, like dinner plates got to go straight in the dishwasher, but coffee cups, we can get up to four or five and they're still sitting there. Um, Have to do the big collection at the end of the day. Like me, I just rinse out the one cup and keep using it all day. What's wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) And what would be your best habit? Um best habit getting a fresh coffee cup (laughs) (laughs) uh really good at that exactly best habit is one that I've had to cultivate being you know someone who's quite prone to anxiety is um you doing things like uh checking in with myself gratitude exercises meditation and mindfulness I think has saved my mental state a lot um and just remembering that I actually get a lot more done slowing down than I do going at a million miles an hour seven days a week uh 12 months a year so yeah giving myself permission to take a break and chill out which it does not come to me naturally Mm, me either now, you've mentioned a couple of your favourite books throughout our chat, but if you had to choose just one must-read book for our community, what would that one be? 
I would have to throw it back to one that I mentioned earlier because I have been saying this probably from day dot on my channel and I still mean it and believe it, which is The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf. Um, it And that's because it relates and r would speak to anyone and everyone with eating disorder history or without, whether they've ever been on a diet or they haven't. It was written in the 90s. It has not been updated and it is still as relevant today as it was then. It really unpacks uh, how we come to believe and internalise all these beliefs and notions about beauty, about body standards from a historical standpoint, from an academic standpoint, from a um, sort of an industry standpoint whether it's the cosmetic industry uh, or the diet industry, it throws in the advent of eating disorders in there. It is a fascinating read and it will change your whole life. It will help you to filter out some of these bullshit messages a little bit easier. I'm going to look for that. Do you know if they have the audio book? They do because I have okay. every version of it possible. <laughs> Brilliant. That is going to be the first thing I download after our chat. I'll get Thanks straight into that. So I've heard that one brought up in a couple of different conversations, so it keeps coming to me, so I obviously have to get it. If you want an intro to sort of its themes, there's a really great 20-minute talk by Naomi Wolf, the author, when she came out to Australia in 2015 on the ABC. So if you look up, you know, ABC Naomi Wolf Beauty Myth, it should be the first result. There's a 20-minute chat in there that she gave. Brilliant. A bit of an enticer. I will have yeah. to have a look. Now, next, what are you currently watching on TV, if anything? Are you into uh, a series? Just finished The Stranger by Harlan Coben, that, that that series on Netflix based on the Harlan Coben book, and it infuriated me. So I don't even want to really mention it here because <laughs> I don't, okay. don't want to encourage anyone else to go and watch it because it was quite frustrating. Um, but I love documentaries. I love um, anything on Netflix that's documentary. I actually just finished watching Leaving Neverland, um, the Michael Jackson documentary, which mm. is very, very heavy. Um but actually doing a bit of a throwback as well at the moment to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I was a big teenage Buffy fan, uh, so love the nostalgic throwback to that show. Um, yeah, so anything that's kind of documentary or a little bit nerdy, you'll usually find me watching that. I love that. Now, next, what keeps you aligned personally? Oh, what keeps me aligned is definitely checking back in with my values. I'm somebody who can kind of drift away from what I know is best for me, not necessarily what I should be doing, but, you know, what is best for me personally. I think we can all get stuck on um, doing the most or, or you know, being the best uh, at what we're doing. And I sort of have to re-shift my values to better, not best, and sometimes better also includes um, sort of powering down and, and giving yourself some time away. Um, so really making note of my values, writing these things down and saying, this is what I want from my life. This is what's important to me, family, friends, time with myself, creativity. And if I find myself straying away and I check back with that list, then we need some time out. We've got to get back to that, those core values. So yeah, just staying very clear on beliefs and, and what's important to me. So good. And lastly, what are your favourite words to live by or your all-time favourite quote? Oh, 
fall down seven times, stand up eight. I think that getting away from that perfectionistic all or nothing, black or white, um, you know, it's either success or failure, it's good or bad, and learning to live in the grey and see there is so much value from not being perfect. There is so much value that you take away from screwing up. Uh, You look at what worked, what didn't, take the balance and try again next time. As soon as you said that, I just, my face broke into a big smile (laughs) and the first thing that came into my mind was, spoken like a true recovery coach <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the, back in the day when I started recovery I had a tumbler you know where you just repost quotes yes. I think it was yes. one of the first ones. I was like oh my god look at me I'm in a quote I'm in a Japanese proverb that's me um yeah it's 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 really giving yourself permission to to mess up and seeing just how much you can grow from it as opposed to striving for perfect perfect is so boring nothing left to learn so so important thank you so much Mia you are an absolute pleasure to speak with I feel like we could just talk all day Great. Um, <laughs> yeah yeah so thank you again for your time and your knowledge and also your passion and just the work that you're doing in this in this field because it's so so needed and where can people head to to connect with you and find out more The best places to come and find me would be my YouTube channel, which you just need to type what Mia did next into that YouTube search bar, or you can come and find me on Instagram on the same handle, just what Mia did next. And if you're wanting to come and check out what I do as a coach, you can come to my uh, my website, which is beyondbodycoach.com. There is a bit of a lengthy wait list for clients at the moment, but if you want to get on that wait list or talk to me about how I can help you with doing some coaching in your recovery or just recovering from a diet mindset, do send me an email because the sooner you get on that wait list, the sooner we can work together. And that's one of those steps towards recovery that we spoke about. That's right. Support is key. Brilliant. Mia, thank you so much. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.